Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles this morning to the second chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, where we will be looking together at verses 22 through 35. Luke chapter 2, 22 through 35. And you can find that passage on page 1006 in your pew Bibles. Well, beloved, every year as we come to this celebration that we call Christmas, I like to call on you to consider at least some of the facts surrounding the very well-known story of the the birth of Christ from the pages of Scripture. We've spoken together many times of the joy, the tangible joy that surrounds what is undoubtedly the greatest story ever told. We've looked at it from the perspective of the gift that we have received from God in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've seen many times now both the humility that surrounded the birth of Jesus Christ into this fallen world as well as the joy that truly ought to be associated with this event in the history of our redemption. Today I want to talk to you about the hope that truly is ours as we celebrate this day. We are all well aware of the events that surrounded the birth of Jesus Christ. We've been singing now for weeks about shepherds and their flocks, about wise men and mangers and Bethlehem. It is and indeed it should be very familiar to us. And so this morning as we prepare to celebrate this day with our families and our friends, I thought that it might be good for us to discuss another event, an event that is perhaps not so well known, but still very closely tied to the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, one that I think truly highlights for us the hope that really ought to be associated with this time of year. This morning, as I said, we celebrate Christmas the day that we look in joyful gratitude toward Almighty God for the birth of our Savior, the one who would come and take away the sins of God's people by willingly laying down his own perfectly righteous life. I've heard a lot over the last several weeks about the true meaning of Christmas. And the more I hear it, the more it makes me wonder what some of those who say it actually mean by it. One of the things that never seems to grow old in the Christian community are these constant reminders of what it is that we are celebrating this time of year. You probably saw repeated this past week, maybe this past month, status updates, tweets that sound something like this, don't forget the true meaning of Christmas. Jesus is the reason for the season. Let's all agree to keep Christ in Christmas this year. Quite possibly you saw or you heard that same point being made in some other way. Surely you've heard it. Perhaps you've even said it yourself. And certainly, I want to be clear, it's a valid concern as we look around this culture that we all live in and we see such a a building antichrist mentality sort of permeating throughout it. 
The world is and always has been opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel as they have been revealed to us in Scripture. And certainly there's nothing new under the sun in our own day. So maybe you're asking yourself this morning, Steve, I'm trying to follow you. If if you agree that Jesus Christ is all too often forgotten this time of year, then why are you bringing this up like it almost annoys you to hear these little reminders? Certainly there could be no harm in pointing out to others that Jesus is the only reason that we even have a Christmas day to celebrate. Well, if you're asking yourself that question or anything like it this morning, as I begin to take aim at what I think we in the church often miss ourselves this time of year, I want to tell you you're on the right track. Because the truth be told, I want nothing more than to provoke you into asking questions. All too often, I fear we repeat these little sayings in Christendom. We hear them and we just pass by without any real thought on our part whatsoever. The ancient Greek philosopher Socrates once said that the unexamined life was not worth living. I would agree with that. You and I must ask questions. We must know what we believe and why we believe it if we're ever going to be able to give an answer for the hope that is supposed to be within us. We must know what we know if we are ever going to have that sure knowledge or that hearty trust that the Heidelberg Catechism speaks so distinctly of in question and answer 21, describing true faith. I know many of you know it by heart. What is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to me in his word, but also a hearty trust which the Holy Ghost works in me by the gospel, that not only do others, but to me also, forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. It is a true knowledge and a hearty trust that comes not from our earthly heritage, Not simply from diligent study, but from the gracious hand of Almighty God himself. We should praise God if we are not just asking questions, but especially if we are asking the right questions. So it's not that I find it wrong to point others to Jesus at Christmas. Would that we did it every day of our lives. Beloved, I do hope that we point them to the Christ that has been revealed in the pages of the Bible and not simply to another idol that replaces the old ones. If I get people to tear down their inflatable Santa Claus and his reindeer only to replace it with an inflatable nativity scene and never look any further than that mistakenly so-called cozy scene in Bethlehem, then I've not taught them the very first thing about the true meaning of Christmas. You see, Jesus Christ's birth is not isolated from his life, his death, or his resurrection. Beloved, the Christ child was not born into this world as a complete and utter mystical mystery. 
There were the prophets who foretold his birth right down to the minute details, including even the exact geographical location where he would arrive into this world. Almighty God had thundered the proclamation of his coming as he spoke his curse upon the the serpent in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. I want us to understand that all of Holy Scripture points to this child being born for a very specific purpose. And that purpose went far, far beyond just his birth. If we point people to the baby Jesus as the reason for our celebration and we never get to the purpose of his birth, then we're simply giving them another idol to look towards in some mystical hope that somehow this baby contains the power that we're all so desperately looking for. So they acknowledge him as a God, but miss the point that he is the God, and that he came for far more than just to be brought into this world under very unusual circumstances. Beloved, Jesus Christ is the consummation of all hope. He's not mystical standing far off in the distance. He has been revealed in the pages of Scripture. He has ascended into heaven. He is even now sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, acting as our advocate. He has sent to us the promised helper, the Holy Spirit, to open up blind eyes to the truth about exactly who he is. And exactly why it matters so very much to us. So this morning, the question that I want us to ask is not, have you or those around us kept the baby Jesus in their Christmas celebrations this year? The question I would like to get at is the question that I've tried to keep before us always from this pulpit at this time of year. What really is the true meaning of Christmas? Why was Jesus born at all? Why is there any hope in the birth of this child? And to look for that answer, I want to take this morning a look at this man, Simeon, in the temple at Jerusalem. This man who was so patiently awaiting the entrance of God incarnate into this fallen world. And in looking at Simeon, I want to point out to you just a couple of reasons that we, are, we ourselves have for never losing hope, even amid the most troubled life among us this morning. We need to ask ourselves, what do we mean by the true meaning of Christmas? So I'd like you to follow along in your Bibles this morning as I read now from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 2. Again, I'll pick up with verse 22 and read through verse 35. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and holy word of our Lord. Now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. 
And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all the people, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for your word this morning. We're grateful that we can come before it as we do each Lord's Day. I pray that you would clear our hearts and our minds of the many things that distract us especially on this day. And Father, I pray that we would be able to give our undivided attention to your word so that hearing it through the power of your spirit, we might be transformed by that word for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. In the 12th chapter of the book of Leviticus, we find in the law of God very specific instructions regarding the purification of a woman following childbirth. We're told there that during the time of her uncleanness, she was not to touch anything holy or even enter into the sanctuary until the time and ceremony of her uncleanness and her purification were complete. She was to wait another 33 days following the already eight days which were to be waited until the circumcision of a male child before she could approach the temple in order for the priest to make atonement for her and pronounce her ceremonially clean. There's been a lot of speculation in the world of theology as to why it was that Jesus even had to be circumcised. We know, after all, that in him was no sin, either original or actual, So many have raised the question, why did he need to bear the sign on his body of the mortification of his flesh? I'm not going to spend a lot of our time this morning speculating about the why for now. I think it suffices to say that Jesus' circumcision was a testimony to all of Israel and to the world that Jesus was in fact a Jew. He was of Jewish descent born to a Jewish mother under the Jewish law. Without circumcision, he would have been in violation of the very law that he came to fulfill. And we know that in the eyes of the law, Jesus Christ had to be and in fact was absolutely perfect, blameless, without spot or flaw. 
And it's important. So now here we are. He's been circumcised. And the time has come for Mary, his mother's purification. The time to present Jesus Christ as the firstborn male of the womb, according to the law of God. That time has come. And that is the occasion that brings Mary and her husband Joseph to the temple with Jesus. That's the setting of the scene here. Where we meet in the pages of sacred scripture, this devout man named Simeon. This is the only place in the entirety of Holy Scripture that we hear anything about this man at all. We know very little about him, very little about his lineage. But what we do know is informative enough, and I hope it will be an encouragement to all of us who call ourselves by the name Christian this morning. We are told that Simeon was a just and devout man who was patiently awaiting the consolation of Israel. And I want you to think about that for a moment as we consider this man who was one of the very first earthly creatures to make a very public proclamation of the purpose behind this most holy child's existence. Remember, This is all happening at a time when the people of Israel have reached yet another low in the practice of their sacred religion. The faith of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had once again been perverted. This time with the poisonous leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. We know them, right? We've certainly talked about them enough. These men took the people's eyes off of God, off of their utter dependence upon him and his grace, off of his precious promises, and pointed them rather in the direction of self. They espoused self-righteousness at every turn. And in doing so, they had spoiled the historic faith of the patriarchs with all of their false teaching. We've talked at length about these men even recently, so I'm not going to spend any more time on them this morning. I trust that by now you know exactly what Jesus thought of these men and of their teaching. He was never very friendly towards these men. God's chosen people were once again under the thumb of a foreign oppressor, as they had been so often throughout their storied history as a nation. And they had once again lost sight of the covenant, and its subsequent promises that existed between many of them and Almighty God as his particular chosen people. They were suffocating once again in the darkness. But of course, that's not the end of the story. I said that we can take much hope from this little narrative here in Luke chapter 2 this morning. So we need to ask ourselves, amid all of the darkness... Amid such horrific sin and full-scale departure from the promises of God, where is there to be found any hope? Well, the hope, beloved, is in the realization and the reminder here that Almighty God always keeps His promises. He is faithful. He said clearly that He would keep a remnant of His people to worship Him, 
And that no matter how bad things really got, the people of God would always remain in some form. There would always remain a remnant of the faithful. Almighty God will never be without a witness in this fallen world in which we live, no matter how bleak things may appear to be on the surface. He said he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And he's proven that to be true again and again and again throughout the storied history of the church. God is faithful. God always remains faithful to bring about everything that he has promised in his word. J.C. Ryle, in his wonderful commentary on this passage in Luke, I think really brings this point home. I want you to listen what he writes concerning this. He says, The true church may be driven into the wilderness. It may become a scattered little flock, but it never dies. There was a lot in Sodom and an Obadiah in Ahab's household. There was a Daniel in Babylon and a Jeremiah in Zedekiah's court. And in the days of the Jewish church, when its iniquity was almost full, there were godly men like Simeon in Jerusalem. Do you understand? There was, even amid the wickedness, the iniquity of Israel, the trials, the suffering, the great suffocating darkness, there was God-given true faith, a small flickering light in the darkness, There was sure knowledge and a hearty trust in Almighty God and His Word. There were those like Simeon who by faith were patiently awaiting the consolation of Israel, the entrance of God's Messiah into this world. Beloved, you and I ought to take tremendous comfort from that especially in our day when so much of what passes as evangelical Christianity looks nothing like what we see described in the pages of sacred scripture. Our hope, like Simeon's, is that God will do everything that he said he would do. And you understand this morning, we're not talking about blind hope. Faith is not the equivalent of wishing upon a star. We, like Simeon, have witnessed the consolation of Israel. We have been given in the pages of Scripture, through the eyes of the very Spirit of God, a revelation of the consummation of all hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And faith, which God gives, lays hold of that truth. It not only knows it, but it trusts it. Faith embraces the truth of God's word. Simeon had received this kind of revelation from God concerning the Christ. Look at verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death 
until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Simeon had that true faith that we talked about from the catechism. He had taken God at his word. He had believed and trusted that Almighty God would bring about everything that he said he would. Because he is in fact God. So here amid a a wretched and dark Jerusalem sits a man eagerly awaiting the fruition of that precious promise. He knows in his heart that though he has grown old and weak, that he will not depart this life until his tired, weary eyes have looked upon the face of the promised Messiah of God in flesh. You see, many wonderful events surrounded the birth of this child. And undoubtedly, Simeon was aware of all of them. But I think it's critical for us to see here that his faith does not have as its primary object the miracles that surrounded the birth of this child. Do you recognize that this morning? He makes no mention that this child was the first in known existence to be born outside of the regular method of procreation. The virgin birth was not the thing that Simeon banked upon and celebrated here. There is no mention of the star that led the men mentioned in the gospel accounts directly to the Christ child himself. There is no mention of the staggering humility that surrounded the birth of not just any king, but the king of all kings, the king for whom all kings were but dim flickering little shadows. There's no mention that the prophet Micah had said definitively and very specifically that this child would be born in Bethlehem. There's no mention here of the host of angels, the army of heaven, who loudly sang out in praise and adoration at the arrival of this child from the heavens. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill to men. Beloved, understand, those are all wonderful things. And they speak to the supernatural wonders that surrounded the birth of Jesus Christ, the God-man. This was certainly no ordinary event. It was epic in every sense of the word. But you see, Simeon, Simeon was not at all surprised by any of it. Simeon did not have faith that was being propped up by the miracles of God. Simeon believed God. He took him at his word. The Holy Spirit had graciously opened his eyes to the truth of God's word and quite simply stated that was all it took for Simeon's manifest faithfulness. These other things, they were all spectacular. They were wonderful. But they all merely upheld what Simeon already knew. You see what I mean by that? 
They were not the proverbial cake, but the icing, the adornment. God promised a Messiah. He said very definitively that he would come, and he told Simeon that he himself would be an eyewitness. And Simeon believed God by God-given faith. Do you understand? Why does it matter that you and I get this? I want you to understand this morning, Christmas is God fulfilling his promise. Christmas is the coming of our Savior for the express purpose of reconciling sinners like us to a perfectly holy and righteous God. We cannot divorce his coming from his purpose for coming and still somehow understand the reason for the unrivaled level of joy that rightly surrounds this event that we celebrate this morning. The joy that went well beyond this world even into the realm of the heavenlies. You see, it was an event that affected all of creation. I think we see that clearly here with Simeon. I always cringe a little bit when I hear sermons or I read commentaries that speak to the magnificence of the resolve, (laughs) the unrivaled level of commitment to his faith, that Simeon would just be there waiting for the Lord to bring about what he had promised. It usually ends with a charge for you and I to go out and pray that we can be strong and patient and resolved and determined just like Simeon. It's nonsense. Hope born from faith which is the gift of God, the gracious gift of God, drove Simeon, a sinner, to wait for the Lord. And you cannot manufacture either of those two things. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And beloved, it's no different with Simeon. And it's no different with you. Faith does not rely in any way, shape, or form on Simeon's revolve or upon Abraham's character or upon all of your hard work to have a good name. If it did or it does, and we certainly have nothing to celebrate this day or any other, the only thing that you and I bring to this scenario of our salvation is our sin and our guilt and our shame. Apart from God-given faith, we truly have nothing. And faith, true faith, is always the gift of Almighty God and the instrument by which we embrace every word of God as true. Simeon is not a picture of fleshly patience and resolve and strength of will. Beloved, Simeon is a picture of the wonder and the beauty and the graciousness of God-given faith. And how fitting it is 
that we find this story of Simeon right here surrounding our Savior's birth. When all certainly seems to be lost, by the grace of God, faith flickers in the darkness. It clings to the promise of God and to his faithfulness. He is a portrait of the wonderful grace of God which saves us despite what we are because of who God is. I want to break down what Simeon's response is to holding the Savior of all of God's people, the incarnation itself, in his arms into just two quick parts this morning. I'm definitely not going to be fully able to unpack this song of Simeon this morning, but as always, I encourage you, take some time in the days to come and focus and meditate upon this wonderful portion of sacred scripture. Allow our brief and concise look this morning at this portrait of God-given faith to cause you to look even more closely at it in the upcoming week. I said I want to look at just two different aspects this morning of Simeon's response to the long-awaited consolation of Israel and the very consummation of both his hope and our hope this morning. And the first is the effect of faith on Simeon that is so apparent in his response. Perhaps you see it already. Sure, sure, we know that obviously there is patience, resolve, and there are absolutely the natural byproducts of God-given faith. But there's something else here. Something else that's different about Simeon. Do you see it? Simeon has absolutely no fear of death. Did you notice that? In fact, we see very clearly, I think here, Simeon embraces it. It's not the wallowing in self-pity kind of eagerness for death. It's, it's something, something else entirely. Simeon lived for his purpose. And he saw it through to the very end. His whole purpose was for this very moment of his life where he would be called to come forward and to give glory to Almighty God for his faithfulness to his people. And now Simeon is ready and willing to go to his eternal home to worship his creator at the very foot of his heavenly throne. Beloved, the grave holds no terror for Simeon. And it holds no terror for us. He knows what awaits him. He has laid his eyes upon the very vessel of reconciliation between sinful man and his righteous God. He's holding in his arms the perfect, flawless lamb, the spotless sacrifice through which the sins of the people of God will be fully, completely, entirely, finally atoned for. His desire to hold on to this earth as a mere pilgrim in it is gone. He knows now that he can go home to his reward. He has run his race. He has been spent, poured out, and used up. 
He, like the Apostle Paul, has realized that to be absent from the body is to be present with his Lord, and he is willing, even eager to go. He's not holding so tightly to this life that he has missed the very purpose for living it. Beloved, nothing but the faith that comes as the gift of God through the power of the Holy Spirit could ever remove the fear of death to this extent. So that death is approached not only with a tangible fearlessness, but with absolute peace of mind, even welcomed, in fact. Have you ever witnessed it before in the saints of God people? I, I have many times. I know I've told you before, but I'll never stop praising God for allowing me to see this in my own father. And it's not because my own father was this great example of morality. He was not. My father was very large in my eyes. He was many wonderful things that I hope I am to my children, at least to some extent. But he was far, far from perfect. He had not lived a perfectly moral life. He had done many things for which he was horribly sorry, even as he faced death itself. But I'll never forget the day I sat with him at hospice in Perrysburg, and I read to him the very first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. I had his undivided attention as I asked him that question that I think all of us have become very familiar with. What is your only comfort? in life and in death. That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all of my sin and redeemed me from all the power of the devil, even death. And so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing from now on to live unto him. Amen. My dad wept at those words. He broke. I saw the light of realization upon my father's face that day. He knew he deserved death. He knew he deserved hell. His life had earned him nothing but pain and sorrow and far too many regrets for one man to carry. But his comfort, his comfort came in realizing that though that was all true, despite it, he was not his own. He belonged to another. One who had paid the ultimate price in full with his very life, his blood. You see, his comfort in life and in death was the same. It was not in his abilities to please God. He hadn't done a very good job there. It was not in the things that surrounded Christ, his miracles, his power, his wonder. No, the object of his faith, his real and steady hope in a life 
that had been disappointing to him and in the very grip of the hand of death itself was quite simply the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not simply the baby in the manger, but the whole purpose of that baby in the manger ever coming into this world in the first place. You see, the real reason for the season, the real cause of our joy this morning, the purpose and the hope of Christmas is that Almighty God condescended. That means He came down. He took on flesh. He lived a life of humiliation and suffering, yet He Himself remained blameless, perfect in the eyes of the holy law of God. And He took that perfection, that innocence, that righteousness, and He willingly walked into the arms of death for us because of our sin. He endured the wrath of God poured out against our sin in our place for us. And he arose from the grave and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father in glory. And Almighty God in His unfathomable grace and mercy allows for us to behold even a glimpse of that glory and to see the salvation of His people in the work, in the person, in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the second part of this wonderful song of Simeon. He's holding, he's not holding in his arms just some mystical child surrounded in miracle and mystery and intrigue. What does Simeon say he's holding in his arms? The salvation of God. Revealed to undeserving sinful men like Simeon and like you and I. And it is the light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory and glory to the people of Israel. This will be the great shepherd of the sheep the separator of the wheat from the chaff, the goats from the sheep. And as Simeon looks through his tears at this child, he says, he will bring about the rise and the fall of many in Israel. And as he spoke a word of prophecy and blessing to Joseph and Mary, we are told simply that they did what faith does. They marveled. They stood in awe. Beloved, that we would all marvel this Christmas. I pray that all of our eyes would be open to the revealed Christ and to his purpose for coming. I hope that as we consider Simeon and the object of Simeon's faith, that our marveling would be at far more than just the circumstances that surrounded this particular birth, but that they would move to the purpose of that birth and the wonderful implications of that birth for sinners like you and me. The hope, the glory of Christmas is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we celebrate our gratitude to God, not just for a season, but for every single day of our lives, would cause us to live for nothing less than His glory 
and his glory alone. Amen.